How do you write a biography of a person whose papers have disappeared? We'll find out when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. For the people in our military, it's a time of sacrifice and duty. That's why all four military aid societies have joined together to form the Armed Forces Relief Trust to help military families cope with financial and medical emergencies at home. With so many serving overseas, the need is greater than ever. You can learn more and donate at www.afrtrust.org. A message from the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family it's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So, you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure, 1-800-BE-READY. That's 1-800-237-3239. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Daryl L. Collins, author of Major General Robert E. Rhodes of the Army of Northern Virginia, a biography. That's the full title. It's a new biography of uh, a significant but previously little written about uh, general in Lee's army. Little written about, as uh, Daryl pointed out in our first segment, because uh, Mrs. Rhodes burned her husband's letters after his death. Uh, so there, there are no uh, Rhodes papers as such, no collection anywhere. Uh, Daryl, you said she did this to uh, out of respect for his memory, uh, we might think it's sort of an odd way to do that. The correct way would be to build a memorial and put the papers in there today, a uh, presidential library sort of concept. Uh, but this, uh, but but she had no ill will toward him, uh, from what you understand. Is that correct? That is correct. She remained devoted to his memory. I mean, he died in 1864, and she lived till 1907. And although, unfortunately, there's no photograph of her. By all accounts, she was a very attractive woman. She was in her, only in her 30s when she became a widow, and she never remarried. She just remained devoted to his memory. And um, it is a little strange to think that that's a way to honor someone's memory, but from what I understand, that was a custom practice not throughout the Old South, but it was done at least in, in uh, her part of, of Alabama. And... and uh... 
as I'm sure you've experienced, going through archives, reading other people's mail, which uh, yeah. uh, is kind of a funny feeling sometimes. Uh, there probably are some people who may have wished that their relatives had burned their papers. Uh, one of the great attractions for me, I know, of, of doing 19th century history the, in the pre-telephone era is that people, having no alternative but communicating on paper, put their real, honest thoughts on paper. Yes. Uh, that was the only way they could get them to someone else, and thus we can read letters and diaries that are uh, much more frank than we would ever risk doing today, leaving a paper trail. Uh, exactly. We, we know better from, uh, from from many scandals of the last uh, last few decades uh, that it's not a good idea even to even to put things put anything in email, and it'll be around the world in a moment if you send it the wrong way, so we don't do that if we're smart. But in the 19th century, uh, people committed their, their deepest thoughts to paper, and, and we have them to go on. Now, with Rhodes, we don't, as you said, because we don't have his letters to his wife or, or to his family. Um, well, do we have letters to other family members? Well, that's the thing. Because there's no Rhodes collection does not mean there are no Rhodes letters out there. He maintained an ongoing uh, correspondence, for example, with Francis Smith, the superintendent of uh, VMI. They maintain a lifelong friendship with each other. And VMI has all those letters, and uh, there were letters written to Yule and various other people. Uh, but that was the thing. They're scattered all over the place, and so that was my job, which I really enjoyed, was gathering these up. Uh, the University of Alabama has a few of his letters that he wrote while he was an engineer, even some that he wrote during the war. Now, there are only two known letters that have survived that I know of that he wrote to his wife, and one is in the uh, Historical Society of Pennsylvania in Harrisburg, and the other is held by the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in Chicago. Those are the only two that I know of that have survived. One was a quick note he wrote on the morning of May 2nd at Chancellorsville, and the other was a four-page letter he wrote uh, just after the Battle of Williamsburg. Which one is in in Chicago at the at the bookshop? The uh, four page letter. That's interesting. So, uh, Dan Weinberg, uh, the proprietor there, has been a guest on the show and is a good friend. Is uh, is he holding it uh, on consignment? Is it for sale or it is for sale? Yes. So one of our listeners, if they want a piece of Rhodes history, could buy that. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. You wouldn't happen to know what, what Dan's asking for it these days. $3,800. Well, it's a bargain. Now, if, if he sells it in the next week, I'm going to call him and ask for a commission because we've just publicized the availability of this <laughs> yes, wonderful piece. That's yes. right. Well, um, which, it's a separate topic, The uh, what happens to people's papers. And, and uh, I, I think the, the way you've done this to to write a, a biography of someone where, where the papers are scattered really is an interesting uh, uh, historiographical subject in itself. Uh, a lot of papers today are, are bought and sold. Uh, did you use any uh, catalogs, or did you find anything in catalogs of, of manuscript dealers by any chance? Uh, a good source nowadays is uh, online sources. I mean, more and more information mm. is being put online, um, whereas... Fifteen years ago, when I first started writing books, that was just unheard of. And you had to literally go out in the field and do the legwork. Now so much of it, you can get a head start 
by going online and, and uh, seeing what various institutions have, and more and more of that information is becoming available, which is really convenient. It, it certainly is. I, Fifteen years ago, when I worked in a museum, we received catalogs from you know dozens of manuscript dealers that would have Civil War letters or Abraham Lincoln letters for sale, and often there'd be a photograph of the, the document or a transcription of the document. So you might not actually have access to it, but you would have its contents available. And But the only way to keep up with this was by subscribing to and reading uh, lots of catalogs. And to find someone as, as less well-known, uh, with Lincoln ones, it was not quite so difficult. If you're looking for Rhodes material, you might go through 30 catalogs before you'd find a single piece. Yeah. It would be very time-consuming. Exactly. But again, with the Internet, you could do that today. Yeah, that makes it much more convenient. It's really yeah. Well, that that is, is a, a change in the nature of research. Um, on the subject of, of using these documents to to get inside Rhodes's head, um, you talk a little bit in your book about his attitudes towards things like uh, slavery or religion. Did you find many references to this, or how did you piece that together? Well, an interesting document was his uh, his will. When he knew he was going to go off to war, he drew up a will. And he owned five slaves, and they were a family. And he specified in his will that if uh, he, had, he had a number of financial obligations because, like his father, he liked to supplement his income by investing in local property. This would be rental houses and so on in Tuscaloosa. And so he had a lot of uh, debt. And he specified in his will that if he should die in the war, his wife should have the option of either selling off the children of the slave family or selling them all together, which indicated he didn't really have any high regard for holding slave families intact. I mean, he was rather cold-hearted on that, that issue, I, I thought. And he just grew up in an environment of slavery. His family owned slaves. They were town dwellers, so they didn't have a lot of slaves. Most of them were just household servants. But he saw his father, again, use them like real estate investments. He would buy them and sell them at profit. They would come and go. So he had what I think was probably the standard attitude back then, that slavery was just a fact of life. He just accepted it. And he was rather cold-hearted on the issue, I think. Hmm. What about uh, religion? Do you, 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 meant, you, you say a little bit about that, but it seems like more deductive than anything else. Well, a revealing letter was a, a, a letter he wrote to a friend back in Tuscaloosa right after the Battle of First Manassas. And he's describing everything he saw. And every letter I've seen before that particular point, he makes absolutely no reference to God or the Almighty, or he doesn't even make perfunctory remarks like, God bless you, or I'll none of that. But in this particular letter, having seen the carnage of First Bull Run, he says to his friend, God gave us this victory. God is behind us. And from then on, I start to notice things like that in his letters. He starts to speak more and more often about God and hoping to be saved someday. And when he was killed, they did find on his body a number of, of prayer books and prayer cards and things that probably he never would have considered having before the war, in my opinion. Interesting. Now, he was not engaged in, in combat at First Manassas, uh, as you said, but in the Peninsula campaign, he, he certainly is. Uh, tell us a little bit about what, what happened there. 
His first real combat as a brigade commander came at Seven Pines. That was at the end of uh, May 1862. And he was late getting his brigade up online because he was delayed in getting relieved. And so D.H. Hill, his uh, division commander, launched the attack before Rhodes was fully deployed. Rhodes had two of his four regiments up when the attack was launched. And what impressed me about that was he sent in his other two regiments in echelon until they took over the first line, the federal line of uh, picket defense. And then he brought up his regiments, organized them in a line, and he constantly rode up and down the line making sure his men were in position. And that verified the intense discipline and training that he put his men through. They responded like a machine for him. I mean, they were, they were awesome. And they overran uh, the second Yankee position before he was finally wounded and had to leave the battlefield. And what happened to him there? He took a bullet probably, I'm guessing, in the right arm. I'm guessing that because he writes a letter to Francis Smith uh, a week or so afterwards saying he can't write because of his injury. And it's just, if he's one of the 90% of the people who are right-handed, he... He, was, he took a bullet in the right forearm, and uh, he had to convalesce from that, and that gave him problems for weeks. It didn't heal properly. It was still a problem for him at Gaines Mill nearly a month later at that battle. He had to leave the field because the wound reopened, and it, it took a long time for him to get over that. But obviously not, not an amputation. He was... he was fortunate in that regard. Yeah, that didn't happen. So he goes on to fight then at Gaines Mill as well, but but not at 100%. Uh, so he begins the war as a regimental commander. By this time, he's commanding a brigade. Uh, so was he promoted to brigadier general by this time? He was promoted brigadier general in October of 1861. And in early 1863, D.H. Hill uh, resigned and rode, took over temporary command of the division. So he's acting division commander until after the Battle of Chancellorsville when he received his commission as a major general. Oh. So he's, he's moving up the ladder. Now, what, he was not a West Pointer. And no, he was, he was one of only a handful. Uh, Wade Hampton was another, Brian Grimes, who achieved that high rank, major general, without the benefit of West Point. Did, now, in, in the Union Army, certainly, if you were not a West Pointer, there was... Uh, a lot of uh, close-mindedness among those who were West Pointers. Uh, uh, they were regarded as political generals, uh, whether they were Dan Sickles or John Logan. Uh, they weren't. They were outside the pale. What didn't the VMI education give some kind of uh, some kind of insider? track to someone like Rhodes, do you think? It, it did, but I don't think it had near the prestige that it does, say, today. In 1861, VMI had been open only 22 years, so it really hadn't established itself as a first-rate military institution at that time. I mean, Stonewall Jackson, having been a, a professor there, that lent it a great deal of credibility and prestige, but it still didn't have uh, near the prestige of, say, West Point. But it was on its way. So, so it's so it's Jackson himself, and after the war, and I'm sure the the cadets at Newmarket and so on add to the legend. Uh, they do definitely, uh, yeah. So it's not not till later. Now, so Rhodes continues on, then he's brigadier general, commanding a brigade. Um, 
he he does so in the next campaign, uh, the, the Maryland campaign, uh, and his troops uh, fought at Antietam, but they also fought at South Mountain. Is that right? Uh, before the uh, Battle South of Antietam, Mountain. South Mountain, I think Rhodes gave one of his best defensive performances. He was very very steady and reliable, rock hard on defense, and with only 1,200 men in his brigade, he held back. Uh, Meade's division for over four hours, and he did that by constantly shifting his men from one position to another to meet threats as they arose. I mean, I, I think it was one of his more brilliant performances, and uh, he held them off until nightfall and saved Lee's army, I think, from passing through Crampton's Gap that night and uh, destroying his army in detail. So this was, uh, as McClellan is pursuing Lee, Towards what will become the Battle of Antietam, if if Dole or if, if Rhodes had not performed as he had, uh, as sort of a rear guard, Lee would have been in a lot of trouble. I think so. Yes. Now that then, of course, McClellan does catch up to Lee at Antietam Creek, and uh, Rhodes fights in that battle. And it, by this time in in the book, I'm getting the feeling that uh, Rhodes, you just don't want to be uh, Rhodes's aide de camp. You don't want to be. Where he is, because wherever he is is going to be the worst part of the battle. Uh, that certainly happens at Antietam, although there's no good part at that battle, I guess. At Antietam, he's in his brigade occupies the famous uh, sunken lane, which becomes known as uh, Bloody Lane, and uh, his men took a terrific beating there alongside Anderson's brigade. And uh, Rhodes was wounded again there, and one of his aides was shot in the face. As you said, if you're one of his aides, you really don't want to be near him. And he took a, a shell fragment in the thigh at that battle. And uh, again, I think he and Anderson's brigade uh, saved the breakthrough at, at, in the center of the Lee's line. And uh, they didn't uh, hold Bloody Lane. Ultimately, they were driven from it. But at least they put up a stout enough fight for, uh, to allow for reinforcements to be brought in and hold the center of Lee's line. And when, when uh, Rhodes is wounded there, uh, by, by the same as aide has been, been seriously wounded, uh, there's no one to help him. You describe him bandaging his own leg to keep from bleeding to death. Yeah, he was knocked down, and he thought he was done. He thought it was the worst. And uh, he must have fashioned a tourniquet or something somehow and stopped the bleeding, and then he realized, as he put it, it was not serious and jumped back on his horse and rode back toward his line. Wow. So uh, uh, continues the fight there. Yeah. Uh, someone you mentioned uh, a, a couple times, uh, uh, Brian Grimes, uh, struck me. He, uh, he, he seems to have a recurring relationship with, with this. And one reason the name struck me is that I'm talking to you here from Greenville, North Carolina, and the next town over to the east is Grimesland, which is named for Brian Grimes. Oh. Uh, in fact, we have a portrait of Brian Grimes here in the, uh, the, the Joyner Library on the campus of East Carolina, uh, which uh, it's, it's everyone, I know as an author, you hate to hear about anything that might be source material once the book is out. It's You never finish writing a book. You just sort of stop and publish it. Uh, that's right. You reach a point where you say, that's enough. I have to start writing. <laughs> exactly. And... Uh, uh, I don't know if there are, are references to Rhodes in the Grimes uh, papers that are here, but uh, perhaps there are. But 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 he and Gr it seems like Rhodes and Grimes keep running into each other, uh, did they not? 
they had a fairly stormy relationship. Um, they, Actually, they, Daryl, let me interrupt you, and what we'll do is we'll take another break, because that's a good enough story to come back to. Okay. So what we'll do is we'll take a short break once again. Uh, this is Civil War Talk Radio.